This brings us to the third major division of the book of Acts. And this is where gears are going to shift significantly. Where we have been mostly focused on the work of the apostles or those who gather around the apostles like Philip and Stephen and mostly centered on Jerusalem just slightly moving out into the greater Judea area of Cyprus and Antioch which is still would still be considered in the ebb and flow of Jerusalem life in some kind of way. And it's been largely focused on Jewish Christians. The gears are going to shift drastically. Now, Peter and all of them are going to be mostly left behind in the narrative, though they will pop up here and there still. The focus is going to be predominantly on Paul. This is where we're going to see his name change happen. And then the focus is going to start moving more and more to the Gentiles, only because the Jews reject and immediately become hostile everywhere that Paul goes with one rare occasion of Berea. And then we're also going to begin to expand into the entire Roman Empire. This is where we head into and to the ends of the world. We have seen Jerusalem. We have seen Judea. We have seen Samaria. And we've seen going outside of that. But now the whole focus is welcome to the Roman Empire. Welcome to everyone, man, woman, Jew, Gentile, rich, free, politically powerful, no, coastal, internal, everybody is going to start getting the gospel as this spreads through Cree missionary people. The other thing to remember is that this isn't the only missionary journeys. Yes, Paul and Barnabas will go on one with John Mark, but we're going to later learn that they're going to have a division of the second one, and John Mark and Barnabas are going to go on one, and Paul's going to go on the other. And then we're going to later meet people like Priscilla and Aquila, who are already Christians coming from Rome before Paul has ever even met them, which means somebody has evangelized to them and done missions from Jerusalem to whatever. And we're going to, and we're going to be other times where Paul will come upon churches that are already established on the complete other side of the Mediterranean or something like that which means God is not tracking all of the missionary works that are happening. He's only tracking one specific strand to give you an idea of what's happening and the way that it comments. In the same way, the book of Judges, there were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of judges over a 300-year time period. Um, and they weren't, they weren't like the President of the United States. There was a judge there and a judge there and a judge there around Israel like governors. And then one would come into power and the other one would go out all different times like governors. Yet, we are six of them are highlighted. Six of them are highlighted in great detail with a few minor ones in between to kind of give you an idea that generally speaking, this is what the judges were like. Most of the judges probably fit into one of these six categories throughout this time period. And then he highlights two final judges in the book of Samuel with Eli, the priest, who Hannah goes to, and Samuel, the last and final true judge in that kind of a sense. The same thing is here. God has chosen Paul for whatever reason. Was Paul probably the major and most, the greatest influence of spreading the gospel? That's what we get from the book of Acts, right? But was he the only one? No. Were there some coming in second and third place and in influences? I don't know. But this is the strand that God chooses to pick. So in this division, the focus shifts from the apostles to Paul. 
and the mission in the greater Greek world as it presents the geographical expansion of the church into Asia Minor, which we know today as modern-day Turkey. Even though Paul becomes the focus of the book from this point, it is still Yahweh in the person of the Holy Spirit who is the major character and the catalyst and all that happens in this salvation story. That was the other point that I made at the very beginning of this book. The main character is not a biography of these different people. The main character is Yahweh and the Holy Spirit. This is the focus. This is, in fact, many people have said that this should be renamed the Acts of the Holy Spirit. That this book should be really be known as the Acts of the Holy Spirit. As the mission to the Gentiles unfolds in Acts, Luke shows that the ministry to the Gentiles paralleled the ministry to the Jews. He did this by relating many things done by the missionaries to the Gentiles that were very similar to what the missionaries to the Jews did. This demonstrates that Yahweh was behind both missions and that they were really two parts of his plan to bring the gospel to all the people. Luke's approach will be to give three major representative speeches of Paul to three definitive kinds of audiences, to the Jewish synagogue, to the Antioch and Poseidon, in Antioch, Poseidon, to the pagans in Athens, and to the Christians of Miletus. In all of this, there are going to be three major speeches given to three major different kinds of audience to show that the gospel is for everyone. The other thing is that what Paul does in the Gentile greater empire will be very similar to what Peter and all of them did in the Jerusalem church in Jerusalem. And just like Jesus will do the exact same things that Yahweh did, speak in the same way that Yahweh did, and accept worship and honor and glory in the same way that Yahweh did to show that they are the same, Luke is going to show Paul doing the exact same messages and the exact same miracles and the same ways with the exact same miraculous escapes from things as Peter and the apostles had to show that this is the same spirit led by God involved in the Gentiles' lives, meaning that they are just as accepted. Just like the Holy Spirit came on the Gentiles and the same way that it came upon the Jews at Pentecost. The first section in this division is the first missionary journey of Paul. This section records the first missionary journey which took place between 46 and 47 A.D., so it's about a year-long missionary journey beyond Syria to the western coast of the Mediterranean Sea. Paul and Barnabas' mission was to take the gospel to the Jews first and then the Gentiles as they moved through Asia Minor. This journey would bring a much greater increase in Gentile converts and in continued opposition from the Jews. Though there had already been success in converting Gentiles, it is Luke's intent to portray this missionary journey as being the church's inaugural efforts at planned evangelism of the Gentiles as well as Jews. So before, the gospel was just like exploding in Jerusalem. And the work of the Holy Spirit was just doing its thing. And and the disciples were just kind of kept like grabbed along with that flow. And they, they went with the Spirit. Went and they responded, reacted. Like remember Peter's like talking to Cornelius and God's like, okay, end of speech. Holy Spirit. Okay, he's like, they're just kind of responding and reacting to everything that's going. And because that was, they were brand new. This is all new. They had no idea what to expect with the Holy Spirit coming in Acts chapter 2 and around 35 AD. 
Now, it's been a good 10 years later. And the church is now starting to get its feet underneath itself. It's, it's established. It's beginning to figure out this Holy Spirit thing. It's beginning to figure out that we're no longer just Jews. We're all ge- also Gentiles. And, and, and now it's, it's got donations. It's meeting needs. It's got ministries and soup kitchens and, and homeless shelters and all this kind of stuff, right? And, and now they're ready to now expand the garden. Not just keeping up with the Holy Spirit. And I'm not saying they're leaving the Holy Spirit behind and doing their own thing. That's not the implication. But not just constantly just reacting and trying to understand what's going on. The idea is now we're called by God to expand the garden. And so we will pray and we will find two men. And then we will send them out. And now we are very intentional, very intentional about not just people accepting Christ and just happen to go back home and share it. But now we're intentional about sending people out into different places in order to spread the gospel. Marshall says this, I, Howard Marshall. Paul's missionary work during this period has the best claim to being a missionary journey as is customary on Bible maps. The later periods were much more devoted to extended activity in significant key cities of the ancient world. And we gain a false picture of Paul's strategy if we think of him as rushing rapidly on missionary journeys from one place to the next, leaving small groups of half-taught converts behind him. It was his general policy to remain in one place until he established the firm foundation of Christian community or until he was forced to move by circumstances beyond his control. We grow up thinking like Paul went to this city and shared the gospel and left them behind and shared the gospel and left them behind and just like boom, 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 boom. Okay, like Super Mario Brothers moving across the map and just conquering thing after after the thing. Okay, that's not all what happens. This is a year-long missionary journey, and he only hits uh, a few cities. He's going to go up into northern-day Turkey, and he's going to hit really focus on five or six major cities there. And then he's going to loop back through the exact same cities again. You can see this on the map on the next page. So you can see he will hit one, two, three, four, five, six, seven cities about. And many of those he will loop back through again. And this is a year-long journey. That means seven cities in a year. He's spending considerable time there. He is not interested. This, this is what the American church, I'm not saying that everybody here or everybody listening or every single church in America has done this, but largely speaking, the American church over the last several decades has made the mistake of kind of like, Go out, get them saved, stamp, stamp, move to the next person, right? And we've kind of like turned the Christianity and the gospel into the industrial revolution, like some kind of factory. Just get them in there, accept Christ, and get them out. And I got a stamp in my Bible that says I accepted Jesus on, right? And, and not that there's anything wrong with any of that, but discipleship has been very lacking in a lot of churches throughout the years. True, deep discipleship. There's this quote. I forget the guy's name. I got to find this guy. Um, and I know the quote well because it just seared itself into my brain as a Bible teacher years ago when our um, superintendent quoted it. Um, and I wrote the name down, and then I can't remember what book on my bookshelf I wrote that name in. Um, so I got to go find it. But he basically says, The Christian church has spent so long 
saving people's souls that they have failed to save their minds. And now we are losing their souls as well as their minds. Because salvation is nothing without discipleship. Jesus said, go out and make disciples, not converts. Now, discipleship requires converts, but converts is a moment. Discipleship is a process. And remember, God mostly works in the processes. Conception is a moment followed by a process. Birth is an event or a moment followed by a process. Process is where you roll up the sleeves and you stick it out. And that's what we're seeing with Paul here. And even the second missionary journey is not really actually a second missionary journey. It is mostly him going back to a lot of the same churches. Um, and then he expands out and to a second missionary journey. And then when we hit the third one, the third one is largely just the same churches all over again. And so if you really put these three together, we have an expansion with this first one. And then the second one, he hits all the same cities again, expands a little bit more. And the third one, he just hits all the cities again with a few new ones here and there. We see discipleship happening. And, and, and Paul will camp out in Ephesus for a good two or three years in the later missionary trips. And he seems to make that the heart. He really thought that that was going to be the heart of the church in the Mediterranean. And then the only time that he really leaves is when he's very confident that this church isn't going to die or go off into some kind of mystery religion or Greek paganism kind of a thing, or he's driven out by people who hate him in some kind of way. We need to rethink as we go through this how he does this. And, and don't get me wrong, it's really easy to think that he's just like bang, 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 bang real quick because time is compressed right? We, even when we read the First Testament, our pastor just said this on Sunday. He said, and we have one paragraph here, but 400 years just went by. The Bible compresses things a lot, and it's really easy to forget, and this is why I've, I've tried, I actually went through my notes after I wrote these all, and I went back and made sure that I had all the dates and right, and that they were all put in the right place and the right thing, because I think seeing these dates are important to help us understand that time's not being compressed. When you read the narrative, it feels like it's just boom, 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 boom. But when you look at the dates, you're like, oh, that was seven cities in one year. Even though it's like a couple of chapters, well, one chapter, a chapter and a half about that we're reading here. So a chapter and a half goes by a lot faster than one year. And sometimes I do think that we don't know these names and we're not used to these cities, so we're just like, yeah, 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 blah, 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 right? And we don't know how to put them together. And so that's why I've given you maps, I've given you dates, and hopefully we can uncompress this a little bit as we go through. Chapter 13, verse 1. In the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Mananan, who also have been brought up with Herod and the Tetrarch and Saul. We're told that these are prominent, well-respected teachers and prophets. And the fact that Barnabas is listed first means that he was probably the most respected prophet and teacher of them all. And Saul is mentioned last because Saul is like, remember, new to the game. 
What's also interesting here is we're told that Mananim was brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. This is like Herod Agrippa. So this guy was brought up with him. This means that one of these guys who's converted to Christianity is now considered a highly respected prophet and teacher in the Christian church, was a part of the upper higher echelon of the Roman Empire, at least in this region. And this is significant because this means that even though Herod didn't get the message, there were people in the palace with Herod who were like, wow, that's pretty phenomenal that Peter was able to get out of that. Herod might be able to deny and just execute the Roman soldiers, but nobody just walks through Roman soldiers like that. Most likely it was not that event, because if he was going to be high respect in the Christian community by then, that means he converted earlier before that. But I just use that as an example, that there are things happening in the Jewish and Christian church that it's the higher upper echelons are taking notice. Cornelius, the Roman soldier, He's a Roman soldier who's in charge of guarding high echelon political people. You don't think he's going to just keep his mouth shut? <laughs> like like he, when he senses that somebody's ready to listen, he's like, hey, I don't have to follow you around all day. Let me tell you about somebody, right? But, I mean, this is starting to affect them. And you need to understand the gospel is for everyone. There's two kinds of ways that I think we think when it comes to this. I think a lot of times we think, oh yeah, this Christianity is for wealthy people and, and really intelligent people and politically powerful people. And, and then the Bible says, oh, it's for the poor. And it's, 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 it's for, it's for the, the lower class too. And they're like, what? But then there's also, there, you can also have the reverse where you hate the rich. Like right now, that's kind of really popular right now in America. I hate the rich. Okay. We, and, and, and you think, oh, I, I have a very highly developed sense of power corrupts and absolute power corrupts, absolutely. And I have a hard time respecting a lot of people in higher positions because I know what power does. And I, I've, I studied history for many, 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 many years. And I've seen what's been happening in our government. But you have to remember, like, and the gospel's for them, too. And the gospel's for them. And God can change them. I mean, Nebuchadnezzar, one of the most cutthroat, narcissistic, megalomaniacs of delusions of grandeur, converted to Judaism and the Yahweh and began to follow him by the end of his life. And, and that's significant. That's significant. And so we have a prophet in the church who was in the higher echelon of the Roman Empire and now is influencing the church. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, so they're worshiping, they're fasting, which means they're denying the flesh. There's, there's only two reasons that you really fight. Fast. Okay? You fast to deprive the flesh, to make the body weak. You're intentionally making it weak, right? Because you find out who the real you is. When you're tired, you're hungry, you're lonely, right? That's when you find out. 
The real you comes out. It's really easy to put on airs and facades when you're well-fed and your life is comfortable and, and you're well-rested. But we know we're like, especially if you're a parent, you're tired and you're like, oh my gosh, like I'm not holding it together as good today as I did yesterday because I didn't get as much sleep. I'm like, what, right? So you fast because then the real you comes out and then you crucify that. You give it to God. You, you find out what you're really like. And the real you comes out, the real depression, the real anger, the real, the real bitterness, the real snippetiness, the real I can't do this, the real hopelessness. All that begins to come out. And then you say, not my will, but your will be done. And you allow the spirit to come into you because the flesh is weak, but the spirit is willing. And the second reason you fast is just in a meal-dominated culture, well, in a making meal dominated culture where you spend a lot of time making food in a way that we don't do today it gives you more time to spend time with god now that's not really true for us because you're like oh i'm fasting well that means i'm just not going out to eat every single day it's like well that doesn't give you a whole lot of extra time with god <laughs> like right i get like 20 minutes to eat lunch at work if i fast that gives me an extra 20 minutes now yeah that's a big deal but it's not like I'm going super spiritual in those moments, right? And so sometimes it takes at least 10 minutes before I can actually like level out and actually begin to hear anything from God. But those are the two major reasons. With fast food and quick instant meals at home, you can kind of kiss the second one goodbye a little bit. Um, maybe you have to get rid of TV or golfing or whatever other things that consume your time. That might be a better fasting thing. Um, but it's really to find out, to hear the voice of God. And so that's what they're doing. They're dedicating themselves. They're removing everything else that they would normally consume their life to focus specifically on who should we send and where shall we go. And then it says, and the Holy Spirit said, one of the greatest weapons that has been used against us in the church today is there's way too many things to occupy us. I mean, sports right now is a god, an absolute god when it comes to time. My students, they go home from school and they spend three hours of practice every day after school and then they go, well, like, they drive out to God knows where all weekend to do this thing and that thing and, and then they, they hardly have any time for homework or any other, they don't spend time with their family hardly. And, then, like, and I'm not anti-sports. But when I was growing up, right, you didn't practice that much. Games didn't take you to other states. Maybe if you went to state championships, that one game at the very end of the school year, right? Entertainment is in the palm of your hand, and you can just, like, you want to read a great article on one of the greatest weapons used against us, it's social media in the palm of your hand. And this article about how when the like button on Facebook and the retweet button Twitter was invented in 2010, we pretty much put a gun to our head and pulled the trigger on any sense of like being a real authentic human. And um, it's a powerful article of how we've just been screwed over. Um, the constant scrolling. Remember when you click on a page and you would scroll to the bottom page and be done? And now it just in goes and goes activities, programs. The church has been guilty of this too. Program here and program there. No wonder sometimes my students, my students come to me so much as like, how do I hear the voice of God? Well, the minute I say like, okay, I'm going to end one minute early and the digital crack comes out, right? 
there's so many things. We live in a pinball machine. America's one big giant pinball machine. And this program and that program is slapping you to that activity and that activity as you're wowed and dazzled by all these lights. They took away everything that could distract them and that would consume their time. And they fasted. And like I said, fasting of food today may not be the thing anymore. Maybe it's fasting of technology. It's fasting of your programs. And they heard the voice of God. They heard the voice of God. There were no MP3 players. There, there were no constant speakers in the mall all the time. There was no radios in the car. They got rid of food. What else are you going to do? And they were also community-oriented. And so they heard the voice of God. Notice it doesn't even really say they prayed. And I'm not saying they didn't, but I'm just saying like they stilled everything in their life and the Spirit spoke and they heard. And what it said was, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. You know, fasting temporarily or permanently in a lot of these areas of our life, technology, movies, TV, social media, sports, music, not that there's anything wrong with all that, but it's just how our culture does it. It makes you really, really unpopular. It makes you look like some Amish freak. But would you rather have that or to actually hear the voice of God? The two of them sent out on their way by the Holy Spirit. See, this is the main actor. This is the main character. This is the main focus. He went down to Seleucia and they sailed from there to Cyprus. So on page 41 of your notes, there is a detailed map on the missionary journey. You can get this on my website on the knowingthebible.net forward slash maps. There's a map there. You can download a high resolution map that you can print out to be a 20 by 30 poster if you wanted to, okay? Or you can just put in a PowerPoint on a piece of paper. So um, you can see this map and the lines, the solid lines are the journeys out and the dotted lines is the journey back. And you can see and follow along. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on the geographical locations. I will leave you that with that um, to follow along as we go through. They sailed there from Cyprus. The Cyprus is the island off of the western coast of the, the Syria. It was about 16 miles from... Um, Cyprus was the homeland of Barnabas. And it was a um, very, 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 very important shipping lane between Syria and Asia Minor and Greece. And so this is a huge city, a um, huge island to hit because you're going to get a lot of traders, a lot of um, people who travel around things. They traveled through the whole island until they came to Paphos. There they met a Jewish sorcerer and false prophet named Bar-Jesus, the son of Jesus. Now remember, Jesus is actually a very common name, like John or Bill. Or something like that. Jesus literally is the Greek transliteration of Joshua, which means Yahweh saves. And like Joshua and Mary and all of them were so popular, and David, lots of people were named this. 
And so Jesus just became the Greek pronunciation. That was the whole point of God saying, and you shall call him Jesus, because he's basically trying to make the point. He's going to be an everyday normal person like every other human, because that's the whole point of him becoming a human, is to become a human and be like everybody else. This isn't sacrilege. And I have students sometimes come to me like, that person's named Jesus. Are they allowed to be named Jesus? I'm like, yeah, um, Jesus around before Jesus. Who was an attendant of the proconsul? Sergius Paulus. The proconsul, an intelligent man, sent from Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. So there's this, the proconsul is the head of the island. He's the Roman delegate over the entire island. He represents Roman interests politically and economically. He runs the island. He reports to Rome. And he has a demon-possessed advisor, an advisor who's involved in magician and sorcery work. Basically, what this means is this advisor does is he consults spirits, which the Bible would call demons, in order to seek their counsel on how to politically run the island which means basically the island is being run by demons. And this proconsul is curious. Remember the Gentile Christians, or the Gentiles there becoming Christians in a massive amount. And Barnabas was sent to investigate it. So now here is Barnabas, the investigator. This is also his hometown. And now Paul, Saul, is beginning to make news and stuff like that. And so he's like, be my guest. And I will treat you well. I want to hear what's happening. I want to know what this is. So he's interested. Now, is he interested because he's like, this sounds really cool. I want to know whether I want to be a part of it. Is he interested because this is dominating his island or influencing his island, however influential it is, and he wants to know how to regulate it or what to do with it? Is it a threat or is it not? We don't know at this point. So he invites him in. But Alamus, the sorcerer, for that is his name, means opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. So his advisor is like, no, 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 no. Because his advisor is demonically influenced. And he wants to resist this in any kind of a way. Then Saul, who was also called Paul, this verse that he's going to be called Paul for the first time. And Luke most likely switches from Saul to Paul Paul is the Greek version of Saul. Saul is the Hebrew word, and Paul is the Greek version of that. God is basically, Luke is probably switching to Paul, the Greek name, because now we're shifting into the Greek world. Okay, so this seems to be more of what Luke is doing in order to emphasize that we are switching tracks here. Then Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Alimus and said, You are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now the hand of the Lord is against you, and you are going to be blind, and for, the, for, and for a time you will be unable to see the light of the sun." immediately mist and darkness came over him and he groped about seeking someone to lead him by the hand and when the proconsul saw what had happened he believed for he was amazed at the teaching of the Lord now this is boldness and that's one thing that Paul is not lacking in and it's boldness 
Paul has no problem. Paul does not sugarcoat anything when he speaks. And he has no problem of telling you exactly how it is. In fact, this is one of his greatest strengths. It also seems to be one of his weaknesses too. There's a time and a place. But sometimes you don't need somebody getting your face and pointing the finger all the time. And remember, none of these men, none of these women are meant to be put up on pedestals. That's what the American church has done. And if you read the First Testament, they just take a, like a, a buzzsaw to all the pedestals on everybody, if you really read deeply. But at this time, we're talking about demonic influence. We're talking about demonic power. We're talking about somebody who's completely given themselves over the demonic power. And they are specifically, intentionally targeting the gospel and opposing it. And at that, Paul gets right up in his face and says, you are evil. You are evil. And you will be judged. And immediately right then and there, he's struck with blindness. And what's interesting is I don't think we think of this a lot, but just as the Christian has the power when the Spirit leads them to do miracles and healings, the Christian also has the power to call down judgments when the Spirit is leading and calling them. And that's something you're going to see in the book of Revelation when you get to the two witnesses. It says, and they had the power to call down judgments from heaven on the non-believers who are coming against them. And, and, and we see the, the prophets doing this. Elijah, remember? Now, I know a lot of people think 42 kids came out and made fun of him for being bald-headed. Um, but that's actually not true. That's a bad translation. It's basically 42 grown men came out and began to mock the prophet of God. And Elisha's response was, he called down a curse on them. And immediately two bears came out and mauled them to death. And then we see Elijah, the other one, who is getting mocked and soldiers are demanding that he come. And he just says, if I'm a man of God, then may fire come down out of heaven. And then bam, it just comes down. And so we see this over and over again where people in the Bible were given the power to call down judgments. That doesn't mean go to your next door neighbor who has their trees constantly dropping their leaves in your backyard. But, but this idea when they oppose the word of God, when they oppose the gospel, when they're attacking it, and you're in the spirit being led by it, you have the power to speak that in that kind of a way. And this is what Paul is doing. And the fact that it immediately happens shows it. This is the point that Jesus said. If I'm not who I am saying that I am, then there's no way I can make this guy get up and walk. But the fact that I have the power and say, get up to you, walk, you know that I have the power to forgive sins. And so this is the fact that it happens means that this is God approving of this judgment. And that's a very, it makes you take pause and really think about the authority that God has given you and what you're supposed to do with that. Not my will be done, but thy will be done. And what was the immediate result? However much the proconsul was really interested in the gospel, 90%, 80% say, I don't know. This is where he says, wow. And he had faith. He had faith. Now, we don't see anything about the Holy Spirit or baptism or that kind of stuff, but 
There's no mistake how the gospel, how the epistles use the word faith. There's no mistake on how they use the word faith. The implication is you don't need a Holy Spirit coming down, speaking in tongues or a water baptism every single time now from this point on because we now know what happens. Now, I'm not saying that didn't happen. We just don't need to be recorded and spoken out loud in words every single time now because we know that that's what happens. But he had faith. A very super powerful political person had faith. Now, this is his advisor. That means that this is his most trusted, or at least one of his most trusted people that he seeks advice from. He has probably seen powerful things from this guy. If he's a sorcerer, you don't just call him a sorcerer, and he's like, but I can't do any magic. Okay, He's a sorcerer for a reason. And he's influenced by the demons. And they know things. They know lots of things too. They're able to tell him a lot of things that other people wouldn't know. And yet that man has been owned by God. Like truly owned. And that's going to make the proconsul take notice. That Paul, from who knows where he's from, just basically owned this guy. And that's what makes him have faith. And then he's got a captive audience. He's a politician. He's a diplomat. He's going to have parties and that kind of stuff. And things are going to be spread. This is how God works. This is how God works. In fact, the wealthy and the celebrities are the people we should be praying for, not just because they're children of God that need to go to the gospel, but because they already have a mouthpiece. They already have an audience. Like, my influence is very, very small and limited. And as an introvert, I kind of like it small and limited. I'm not saying that if God came to me, if God did come to me and say, I want to go bigger, I'd be like, why, God? But I'm not, (laughs) I want to hopefully disobey him. But we're talking about people who already have the connections that are already connected. And they've already done some jacked up evil things. And if one of them... God came into them and, and grabbed a hold of them and they converted? Imagine that. And I'm not saying that God needs them to spread the gospel or that we're doomed without them coming, but I'm just saying that God can use people in all different ways and in all different areas. And that's the equivalent of like some celebrity coming to Christ. This is the proconsul coming to Christ and God is going to use it. This is also not only the first time that Paul is called Paul, But this is the first time that Paul begins to take the lead. Barnabas has been taking the lead in all this. He's the one that investigated Cyprus. He's the one that found Saul. He's the one that led the donation thing. He's the one that brought back. He's the one that decided where they were going to Cyprus, my hometown, right? And this is the first time that Paul takes the lead. And just like Peter faced off with the sorcerer, Simon Magus, so Paul's also facing off. And just like Peter did at the very beginning of his ministry, Paul's doing it at the beginning of his very ministry. Although there's a Gentile focus here. Likewise, this is the first time that the gospel is shared with a high-ranking Roman aristocrat. This is the first time that Acts is specifically shared, recorded, the sharing of the gospel with an aristocrat. Longnecker says this, The conversion of Sergius Paulus was in fact a turning point in Paul's whole ministry and inaugurated a new policy in the mission of the Gentiles. 
the legitimacy of the direct approach to and full acceptance of the Gentiles apart from any distinctive Jewish stance. This is what Luke clearly sets forth as the great innovative development of this first missionary journey. Earlier, Cornelius had been converted apart from any prior commitment to Judaism, and the Jerusalem church had accepted his conversion to Christ. But the Jerusalem church never took Cornelius' conversion as a president president, um, for the Christian mission and apparently preferred not to dwell on its ramifications. However, Paul, whose mandate was to the Gentiles, saw in the conversion of Sergius Paulus further aspects of what a mission to the Gentiles involved and was prepared to take this conversion as a president fraught with far-reaching implications for his ministry. It is significant that from this point on, Luke always calls the apostle by his Greek name, Paul, and except for Acts 14.14, and 15.25, the situations where Barnabas was more prominent, always emphasizes leadership by listing him first when naming the missionaries. For after this, it was Paul's insight that set the tone for the church's outreach to the Gentile world.